Thank you, Adam. I'm pleased to greet all of you this week, and this week has been a tumultuous one with many things that I think many of you, including myself, never expected to see here in our country. Uh, those of you who are older might remember the time when we saw Tiananmen Square and the protests there and the tanks that came in. And a little later, Moscow and its slow dissolution with the Kremlin surrounded and the fall of the Soviet Union. And even as these things happened, the thought that was always in my mind was that these were things that would not occur in our country. They could occur in other countries, but not the United States. But we see here in our country now, a generation growing up that only knows protest as a natural and even necessary occurrence in our country. And we see our children growing up in a culture where there is inculcated within this both a lack of respect for authority and a lack of authorities that are respectable. And as we watch the unraveling of our country in this way, what are we to do? As we're bombarded by the incessant updates on the pandemic, as we see clashes between police and protesters and between protesters and protesters, we see that even these clashes, these kind of discordant events have even invaded within the walls of the church as the symptoms of the disruption in our society, in our lives, enters into every aspect of our lives. And isn't the church supposed to have an answer to this? Isn't God and faith in God supposed to help us at a time like this? Well, of course, the answer to that should be yes. But if the answer is yes, why is it that at least to me, it feels oftentimes like the church and faith does not have an answer, that it doesn't have made a real difference? And if you haven't asked that question, I would invite you to ask it now. Because John does tell us the solution to that question. Because just as we've seen in John, Jesus provided answer after answer after answer. But the people were not able to receive his answer because the answer that Jesus gave was not the answer that the people were looking for. And in a way, this is good news. Because what this means is not that God cannot help or that God will not help, but simply that the one who clearly sees the issues, not only in our country, but also in ourselves, can help and also has helped. And we can receive his help once we are ready to receive the kind of help that he would give us. Now, you might be saying, I want God's help. I'm not shutting him out. And that might be true, because I have seen that truth in the lives of some of those around me. It was true in the life of my good friend as he went through a five-year struggle with cancer. And I saw both the pain that he was in 
when he was sleeping and wouldn't be able to control the groans that would come out. And I saw the truth of it and the peace that he had, even as people came to say goodbye. And the way that he reached out in comfort and a generous spirit, seeking to seek their good, their comfort. I think I saw a little bit of it in Matt Fang, our own ACF member here, as he gave a beautiful testimony for the Joyful Noise concert, even as he prepared to head in for brain surgery. Wonderful testimony I'd love for all of you to hear. How do we open ourselves to receive God's help? We don't have an excuse for not knowing how God would help us because John has been telling us over and over. What is the purpose for every I am statement that we have seen throughout the book of John? These I am discourses embedded throughout the gospel of John are presenting Jesus to us and trying to help us understand who he is and what he has come to do for us. And every I am invites us to look at Jesus with a different metaphor. I am the good shepherd. I am the life. I am the light of the world. And each of these statements invites us to look at Jesus, to see him, and to understand who he is. But the difficulty is we're really a church of doers. We don't want simply to hear, to look at Christ. We want to justify our positions within the church. We want to justify our standing before God. We want to accomplish something. We want to make a difference. But what are we going to do to end the threat of disease? What are we going to do to resolve the problems of social unrest? What are we going to do to save the environment of this world that we're living in? And in reality, we can't do anything to bring an end to any of these problems. And because we cannot bring an end to these problems, there's no end to our dissatisfaction, to our anxieties, to our unhappiness. Now, don't get me wrong. God does call us to respond in a certain way to his word. But it is a doing that flows out of a deep knowing, a relationship and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and an embrace, a desire for him. And so as Elder Gordon presented to us last week, John does this in an explicit way when through the words of Pilate, we read the words, Behold the man. And the reason that John now brings in Pilate to give us this command, Behold the man, is because every single story in Scripture, every account, this entire book pulls us into this person and this event. Every Old Testament narrative points us to Jesus Christ and what he has come to do. The cross is the crux, so to speak, of the entire scripture. Everything in this book is to help us understand Jesus and the cross, and then opening up to know how to live in light of Jesus 
and the cross. And so John highlights this for us one more time because he knows the difficulty that we have in receiving Jesus as he reveals himself to us. And what we see throughout this prayer, uh, the passage that we have today, is the command over and over to behold. And so let us come to God's word in prayer and ask him for his help as we come to behold our God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And as we come this morning to John chapter 19, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is. Help us see the man, to see our God, to behold him, and having beheld him, know how we behold this world, its people, and all the troubles that we face. And so give us this grace this morning that we would find the God who is in the word that he has given. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We read in John chapter 19 and verses 4 and 5 that Pilate goes out to the Jews and says to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, there are many things that Pilate could have said at this point. He could have just said, look at him. But here he says, behold the man. And last week, as Elder Gordon led us into this passage, he showed us how this word from Pilate evokes a certain kind of comparison between the first man, Adam, and the second man, Christ. And so I want to remind us of some of the correspondences that we see between the two. And so let's prepare ourselves by reading verses 1 to 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns, in the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And so what have we beheld in these verses? Well, we might see in here a contrast, an intentional contrast between the first Adam and Christ, the second Adam. And so the first Adam, uh, can we have the slides? The first Adam's sin corrupts his relationship with creation. When Adam sins, all creation falls, and the relationship between man and the creation that God had made that was to be a paradise for the man is destroyed. And the second Adam bears the pain of that twisted creation on his brow. Adam's sin destroys his dominion over creation, but the sacrifice of the second Adam restores humanity's dominion over creation. 
Adam uses his hands to sin and pluck the forbidden fruit. The second Adam receives a sinful beating from human hands to bring righteousness. The second Adam, I mean, the, the first Adam's sin brings him shame and he hides. The second Adam comes out and the word that is used where Christ comes out to present himself shows it is intentional on his part to receive the scornful shaming of men. And the first Adam, though guilty, receives mercy. And the second Adam, though righteous, receives death. And so we need to note that John shows us these things by the acts of man. Pilate, in particular, is the one who declares that there is no guilt in Jesus. And Pilate is also the one who commands us to behold the man. And this continues the pattern we have seen throughout where John uses the earthly declaration of earthly authorities to show and point to truths of which they are unaware. You may remember when the high priest said, it is better that one man die for the nation. And he spoke better than he knew. And we see that God in his sovereignty, we see this dynamic between the two. It is, yes, the acts of men that we will see throughout this passage. And yet it is also the determination, the plan of God that is unfailingly accomplished through every act and even the acts of the wicked rebellion of men. And so we come to the second beholding. We read in verse 14, now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, I want to mention one thing as we come to the second beholding, and that is to say that as we go through this narrative of the crucifixion, I find it is a difficult and a painful narrative for me to read and understand. As we go through, we see the kind of things happening to Jesus that seem shameful, that seem painful, the agony of the cross. And if we have learned to see, to know, and to begin to love him, to see our God and our Savior exposed to these things is not easy. But it is also God who desires us to look upon him whom we have pierced. It is God, through the words of Pilate, who commands us, behold, our king. And so what do we see when we behold Jesus? At this time, as we come to verses 16 and 17, when it says that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. At this point, we see Jesus as he is brought to the cross and he's crucified. He's really a beaten, bloody mass of flesh. And what do we see when we look upon Jesus 
crucified. John invites us to behold, to see, to understand, and in understanding, know how to live. And so when we behold Jesus, we see first a king. We behold a king. These are Pilate's words. And Pilate speaks better than he knows. On the cross, Pilate has been commanded to be crucified, the king of the universe. And Pilate, we see through the narrative, has become exasperated with the Jews. Because it is not his desire to have Jesus crucified, but out of political expediency, despite his efforts to have Jesus released, Pilate has Jesus crucified. But unintentionally, Pilate has Jesus crucified precisely for who he is, our king. Some of the saddest words in the Bible come directly before this passage where Pilate says to the Jews, shall I crucify your king? And their answer to him is, we have no other king but Caesar. Behold your king, this man upon the cross. Is he your king? Do you recognize in him an authority greater than any in this world? Or are your only authorities the authorities of this world? And as we continue, we will see whether we have received this king. Because the second thing we see is we see a Davidic king. In the callous act we see of the soldiers crucifying Jesus, taking his garments and dividing them, we see that they also unintentionally proclaim Jesus' identity. John shows the mercenary actions of these soldiers to be a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, where in verses 16 to 18 we read, For dogs encompass me, and company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, who describes his suffering at the hands of of his enemies. And in this psalm, the righteous king cries out to God, expressing his dismay at the power and the apparent triumph of his enemies. And yet at the same time, he expresses confidence that his God will deliver him. How is it that God will deliver him so that he can stand again among the company of the righteous? And John shows us that this deliverance the ability of God's people to come again into his presence comes about because of the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of David's heir, the one that came to reconcile his people to God. The third thing we see is a humiliated, mocked, and scorned king. And to see this, 
we need to behold Christ crucified. And in our time and culture, we've lost much of the sensibility of what it means to be crucified, what the cross represents, some of the ways perhaps in which we might see how we have perhaps sanitized and beautified the image of the cross in our culture. Behind me, we have kind of a cutout of a cross, and it's beautiful, a wonderful piece of woodwork. We sing songs like, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. <laughs> Doesn't quite for me, those words reflect the absolute horror, the infinite grace, and the terrible humiliation and torture of the cross and crucifixion the wonderful cross. I don't know if anyone living at the time of Christ and considering crucifixion would put those two words together. Quite a few years ago, there was a film produced by Mel Gibson. It was rather controversial called The Passion of the Christ. And what was controversial was that Gibson brought some of what Christ suffered to the movie screen. And at the time, the brutality that was shown through this movie was shocking. And people questioned whether that was appropriate. But one thing that movie did accomplish was that it did correct just a bit the sanitized, sentimentalized vision that we had of the cross. What we need to do is to try to do exactly what John has asked of us. Behold our crucified King. The shame of Jesus' crucifixion is exactly what the Jewish people wished, wished to bring about. The form of capital punishment Jesus might have suffered at the hands of the Jews would have been stoning, as we see Stephen undergo, and as the Apostle Paul suffered many times. But the reason that the Jews kept pressing Pilate to act was because they wanted crucifixion. As we read in chapter 18 and verse 32, it reads, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death that he was going to die. Because only the Romans had the power to crucify someone. And the Jews wanted everything for Jesus that crucifixion brought, the curse of hanging on a tree, discrediting Jesus as any kind of Messiah. Now, John shows us that by crucifying Jesus, that the Jews actually brought about a fulfillment of all the scriptures that prophesied concerning the suffering servant. And so how was it that they thought that this kind of death would discredit Jesus? Because anyone who understood and knew this process of crucifixion could not Imagine that any kind of Messiah, certainly not God himself, could possibly be exposed to that kind of humiliation and disgrace. By verse 23, 
Jesus is a bloody mess. The flogging that he received would have been done with a whip, as Elder Gordon told us last week, with bits of glass or metal embedded in the straps. And each lash of that whip would have ripped chunks of his flesh from his body. The crown of thorns had been jammed upon his brow. And now he has been stripped naked to be nailed to a cross and shamefully made to be a spectacle as he is raised to gasp out the last breaths of his life. As he hangs on the cross, in order to breathe, he must push up by his nailed feet and pull up by his nailed arms in order to open his chest so that he can take the breaths that he needs. But when it becomes too painful and tiring, the crucified man would have sank down and began suffocating. And then to breathe again, to push himself up, to begin that agonizing process again. And up and down, on not a smooth, nice cross as we oftentimes have in our churches, but a rough, splintered logs, ripping his back as he goes up and down. And before this man who is in agony, John gives us a scene of the soldiers who've inflicted this terrible punishment upon Jesus, where they're callously dividing his clothes. And so everything depends upon this. When you look upon that crucified king, what do you see? What do you see? Our thoughts are revealed by our actions. And this is where knowing turns into doing. Because the beholding does not end here. There are two more acts of beholding in this passage. In verse 26, Jesus beholds his mother and the disciple whom he loves. In our English translations, we see the word see or saw there. But it's the same word that in other places in our passage have been translated behold. And so as Jesus beholds, as he sees, as he recognizes, and he knows his mother and this disciple, there is now a call that as he is crucified, that he now issues to them. And so as we look at this passage, we read from verse 26, when Jesus saw or beheld his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, what do you think that John thought when Jesus told him that? Oh, man, now I got to take care of Mary for the rest of her life. The point of beholding is that as we behold Jesus, 
as we recognize who he is on the cross. And this is something that John had come to recognize himself. As we behold Jesus, we see who he is and what he has suffered on our behalf. And so Jesus is beholding as the focal point of all of redemptive history, accomplishes something. What does it accomplish? What is the first and greatest commandment? What is the law that we must obey if we are to come into fellowship with God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so as John beholds his mother, as Mary beholds her son, what do they see? Remember that Jesus' suffering was not arbitrary. The crucifixion, the wickedness, the agony inflicted by the soldiers were perfect. It was planned by God throughout the course of all history, the exact provisions of the cross. And because Jesus' suffering is not arbitrary, what that means is that Jesus' suffering is perfectly tailored to my sin. Jesus' suffering is exactly appropriate to me. And so although it is Jesus who suffers the pain and the humiliation, when I look upon that cross, it is my shame. It is my humiliation. The cross is humbling. And when I see the cross in the proper light and I see the king hung upon the cross in my place, condemned he stood. I'm humbled. And when I see that that cross is appropriate to me, no longer can it be me before you, me over you, my place before your place. Because when I behold the cross as God commands me to do, it transforms me because I see the reality in which Jesus Christ bears the shame and humiliation that rightly belongs to me. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When I behold Jesus, my attitude, what I see when I behold him, there are two things that show he is my king. First, I'm humbled because I see in all the shame and the humiliation of the man upon the cross, lifted up to be mocked and scorned by the world, my shame. I consider all that I have done. I think Elder Gordon brought up two weeks ago. 
if we were to put perhaps a highlight video, 24 hours of the most shameful things that I have ever done and put them up on that screen. Jesus bears that shame. I will not have to. And in being humbled, in knowing that what Jesus suffered appropriately belonged to me, I'm humbled. And having that humility, now Jesus commands me, behold, here at PCC, your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers. When Jesus is my king, a king has dominion. He has dominion over people. And when we take Jesus and look upon a humiliated, crucified man on the cross and say, that is my king, what I have become is one of his people. And I enter into the community of the people of God who are one people, forgiven, whose shame has been taken away, who are now able to live in harmony, loving one another. We'll close in prayer with the words of another hymn that perhaps brings us a little closer to understanding how we are to respond to the cross. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes by faith can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my own worthlessness. Father God, I pray this morning that you will help the people of this church not to embrace the self-realization that this culture teaches us, our own self-importance, our own self-exaltation, but that we were worthless until the redeeming grace of your Son purchased us and took away our shame and took away our disgrace. And as we see the suffering servant, help us in humility now learn to suffer for one another, to know that we are nothing, but in Christ we are everything and we have all things. And in having received such grace in gratitude, help us to shine as a community, as a people who have learned to love one another, to seek one another's interests before our own, and turn the shame and the humility that Christ suffered on the cross within this body to now become the exaltation of the Lamb of God, who for the sake of of his people, took away the sin of the world. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.